A reading from 2 Samuel. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. David and all the people with him set out and went from Baljudah to bring up from there the ark of God, which was called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. They carried the ark of God in a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadad, which is on a hill. Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadad, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went out in front of the ark. David and all the house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the house to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. David danced before the Lord with all his might. David was girded with a linen ephod. David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, and Michal daughter of Saul, looked out from a window and saw David, King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. In her heart, They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and offerings of well-being before the Lord. When David had finished offering the burnt offerings and offerings of well-beings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed food among the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, to each a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. All the people went back to their homes. The word of the Lord. A reading from Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the formation of the world to be the holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, in Christ we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we, who were the first to set our hope on Christ, might live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people, to the praise of his glory. The word of the Lord. King Herod heard of Jesus and his disciples, for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead, and for this reason these powers are at work in him. But others said it is Elijah, and others said it is a prophet 
like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had sent men who arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been telling Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and Herod protected John. When Herod heard John, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and for the leaders of Galilee. When his daughter Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests, and the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it. He solemnly swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you even half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? Her mother replied, The head of John the baptizer. Immediately she rushed back to the king and requested, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was deeply grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths and for this guest, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid it in his tomb. The Gospel of the Lord. It's a pretty grisly gospel story we get this morning. And uh, I guess I want to say a couple of different things about it. And the first is, uh, maybe the reason we have it is because, well, geez, life isn't always happy, right? So here's a story about things not always being happy. There's really no happy end to a clear injustice committed by power against somebody undeserving happens in our world. Uh, so so Bible once again proves to be true. Um, what this story is doing, I think, is, is answering a couple of things at the time it was written. How it is that John, who is considered righteous, uh, got to be executed. A little bit of the backstory. You know George Foreman had like five kids and named them all George. Do you know this? Well, Herod had like five kids and named them all Herod. And then they all got married. They didn't know. A lot of them got married to a lot of ladies that they then called Herodias. And then they named their daughters Herodias. So if you're having a hard time tracking it together, it's because everybody in the family is named Herod, either a masculine ending or, or feminine. Um, and this is what happens in the story. Herod the Great, who'd been at the temple, he's been dead a long time. Uh, th- we get to hear his kingdom was split into four pieces. And now these are two rival factions. And, and what happens is one son takes the wife of another son. He's not dead. He just grabs her because his kingdom is greater than his brother's. So since he has more power, he takes what he wants. And then there's this whole bit about how Herod fears John but doesn't want to kill him. And he makes this promise. Now, now friends, I want to make sure you know... He could not have given half the kingdom to the daughter. It wasn't his anyway. It belonged to Rome, and women couldn't be queens. This is like saying, ask me for the moon, and I'll give it to you. It's a hyperbole. It gives me the reminder, and, and you may be one of these people. Probably not. I'm, I'm pretty bizarre like this. Um, gives me this reminder to be really careful what we promise. Now, I want you to know, as a kid, 
My dad was really big on using the word promise. Basically, if he used the word promise, you could take it to the bank, which is why he only made me about five my whole life. Because <laughs> he didn't want to break it. Uh, he ended up breaking one, and that's because he promised me this particular toy that was kind of like Tickle Me Elmo. It went viral, and you couldn't buy it, and then there was no internet black market. So I didn't get it. And, and that's the only promise I remember my dad ever breaking. I'm one of those weird people, too, that when my kids ask me, are we going to do such and such, I often just say, maybe, because <laughs> I don't want to say yes and us not go. I feel like I told them the wrong thing. Uh, so maybe drives them crazy. Um, when I tell my kids or my coworkers or my spouse, I'm going to do something, I sure think it's important to do it, and I usually follow through and that's what Herod does in the story. And folks, I do want to say, this is a pretty good thing for us to consider. Do we keep our promises that we've made for the sake of following through on what we say? Or isn't there an opportunity sometimes to say, I really should never have promised that. And I won't give it to you because it's wrong. And this is a teachable moment, right? We want to follow through with what we say to our children and our spouses, but sometimes righteousness would be better served if we broke our promise. So at a minimum, I hope God will give us the courage when we discern we've promised something we shouldn't to say, I repent. John would still be alive, don't you see? Which is much better than Herod keeping his word to a dancing child. Then there's one other thing I, I think this story gives us an opportunity to reflect on. And I'm going to warn you, I might get a little worked up. <laughs> there's a lot of art to look at. The windows are pretty. Uh, I, might, I might be crazy. I didn't think so. Uh, but but it, there's stuff to do. A lot of times the Bible gives us these stories. And, and I'll tell you, as a lad, I sure thought everything the Bible said was prescribing how we should behave, telling us what to do. So, like when you read the story of King David today, and he's dancing in a linen ephod, more on that in a second, well, he's the king, he's the hero, y'all should do that. That's sort of how I grew up. And it wasn't until I got to college that I got this other opportunity to think sometimes the Bible is not actually prescribing how we should behave, it's describing how we already do behave. Describing. And then we have the opportunity to say, having looked at a description of how we behave, wow, like the price tag for that behavior is really big. So do I want to follow, copy, and paste it, or do I want to step back and, well, repent and not live like that? So here's this story about Herod and John the Baptist, the death of a righteous man. And I'll tell you, as a teenager, actually many, much of my adult life, you know who I blame John the Baptist's death on? That lady. Herodias was the one who got John the Baptist killed. I mean, after all, she wanted his head on a platter. I mean, Herod seemed to really like John. But I want you to step back with me for a second and think through the transaction that happened. Herodias is a piece of property. She is shadows. She belongs to a man, and another man takes her. 
like taking somebody's bread or car or whatever thing you want. Herodias is a thing in the story. She has been taken. We don't know anything about whether she wanted to be taken. We know now she belongs as a piece of property to a different master. What are her options? She could become morally indignant, of course, and risk her life. And don't you see the life of her child? Pretty descriptive story about women's options, don't you think, historically? Oh, she just should have said no. She's got children. Who will care for the children? Got me thinking, you know, we have words for ladies like this. Temptress, seductress. We don't have words like that for men, have you noticed? I mean, what would you call a man like a gigolo? Well, that's a funny word, right? We don't have any kind of equivalent. I want you to go to the rabbit hole of women's rights with me for a second, because I think the story begs that. In general, I think what I did most of my life with this story that most of us do is we blame the lady who's acting out of no options instead of thinking about the society that has created no options for her and for other women. She can be morally indignant and it will cost her her life and the life of her children. Golly, we have that same option today, don't you think? We have the same option, frankly, of blaming people who bear symptoms or thinking about the greater source of how they have no choices. And I couldn't help but think when I heard this story about Bill Clinton. So go back, and my memory might be flawed, but I sure remember when the whole Monica Lewinsky thing happened, all the TV people wanted to interview Hillary Clinton. And they wanted to interview Monica Lewinsky and ask how that felt. And how could Hillary Clinton stay by Bill, who had just cheated on her? And here is this woman then, who in the middle of her own tragedy, had to sweep up the mess her husband made. Now what choice did she have? Really? What choice did Monica Lewinsky have? I know she couldn't have done that stuff, but let's think about this, right? The president has power more so than anybody else in the United States and he's done this with an intern. It's not an equal playing field. And typically we blame the woman instead of thinking about the system that creates power disparity between women and men or between people of color, whatever you have it. We usually think about the people splashing around in front of us instead of the currents that have made it necessary for them to do that just to live. This story is an opportunity, at least for me, to remember there's a bigger system at stake than what's happening right in front of us. Consider, please, that about 15 years ago, didn't matter where in the United States you lived, if you were caught in the act of prostitution, the woman went to jail and the man got a misdemeanor crime that cost him about $15. Who was targeted by that kind of enforcement? You know what works? When you publish the man's name in the newspaper, prostitution sort of goes away. <laughs> because it's embarrassing. I know this sounds 
maybe a little far-fetched, but I didn't think it is. I think this story is describing something, a mistake we often make. Punishing people who have no options instead of considering the people who have taken options away. Herodias has been taken. Her survival now depends on the other Herod who took her. She can't get back at him. If he loses, she does too. If he loses, her kid loses. She has got to try to clean up his messes for him, even though he's made a mess out of her. The story of David, frankly, isn't much different. Again, we could look at David as a hero. I'll tell you, as a young person, I sure heard this story where later they have a conversation, David and his wife. She says, David, like, how could you do this? And David says, I will become even more undignified than this. Anybody ever heard the rest of that story? Well, as a youth, I was taught, be undignified for God. Except what I didn't learn as a kid is what David was wearing. A linen ephod. What's that? <laughs> it's a see-through shirt. Was he wearing any undergarments? Probably not. So what was David doing? Well, he was having a little dance in front of all the people. The rating on the dance, not PG. Not PG-13. Not R. And he wasn't just doing that to worship the Lord. See, priests who wore linen ephods didn't do that dancing. Oh, and who wore linen ephods? Priests. David's not a priest. Do you notice who sacrifices the animals every six steps? David. You know who's supposed to sacrifice animals? Priests who wear linen ephods. Not one of those priests. David's wife sees David pretending to be a priest, impersonating an officer. He can do it as a king and get away with it. She sees him in a culture that had no tolerance for public nudity, being basically publicly naked. And she despises her owner in her heart. Think through this. This is not a love match. She belongs to him. She is stuck with this man, and look who she's stuck with. Somebody pretending to be something he's not. Somebody who treats his body that's supposed to be preserved in privacy as public goods. No wonder she despises him in her heart. Not only does she belong to him, she belongs to someone who does not consider her. Does that describe any story you're aware of? Are we supposed to act it out like we read it? Or do we have an opportunity, quite frankly, to do exactly what John the Baptist did and say, that's wrong. That's wrong. And please notice, by the way, uh, this might sound really political, but friends, it really isn't. John the Baptist does not criticize Herod uh, for being a registered Democrat. 
He, he doesn't criticize Herod for the people he puts in his cabinet. He says, what you're doing is morally wrong. You have taken somebody's wife as if you own her. You have treated her like a piece of property that was yours, and she's already with somebody else. I mean, maybe it's political. I'm pretty sure, though, it's exactly what Jesus Christ asks us to do, is to say, that's wrong. I'm not interested in losing my head. I just have to tell you, which is the outcome of the story. And I'm not interested, really, in making anybody unnecessarily uncomfortable. But I do wonder if our call today as disciples is to think about whether or not we will do this. Again, sometimes I think we get this backward. We think we're supposed to lose our dignity for God so that we can actually worship ourselves, which is what David does this week. Instead, maybe we're asked to give up our dignity so that other people can have bigger lives. John took that risk for a lady he didn't even know. cost him a lot, you know. David really wasn't taking much of a risk, to be honest with you. He had all the power anyway, so there was nothing to lose, right? Sometimes I wonder if we didn't get this wrong. Sometimes I wonder if we don't worship political parties instead of the God of righteousness. Because whatever party you belong to, when something's wrong, it's wrong. And for us to say, well, my leader, my senator says this, and, and I, my allegiance to them, friends, that's wrong. It's just wrong. When something's wrong, it's wrong. And, and I'm afraid we have gotten into this trap of saying, well, because I voted for so-and-so, I have to support everything they do. Now, now, we know better than this. And I think the gospel is an opportunity for us to remember that we know better than this. And just to tie this up maybe full circle, there's this really interesting thing that happens in Congress. Um, do you know what the number one determination of whether a senator or a representative, how they vote on a women's issue, do you know what it is? The number one determination is whether they have a daughter. Friends, I've got a daughter, and she is six years old, and I have a son. And my daughter will not live in this world. Not the world that's in the story today. Will not. And I will give up my dignity, every ounce of it, for her to not be treated like a piece of shadows or commodity. And friends, that's the dignity the gospel asks us to give up. The position of power so that other people can live. And you know we're not there. My daughter will not live in the world that I have lived in simply because she's a girl. And that is wrong. And it is our choice whether or not we're going to do like John the Baptist and Jesus Christ and say, I will lay down my dignity to try harder to make sure our kids, our wives, our mothers don't live in that world. You may not have a daughter, but because you come to this community, yes, you do. My little girl is part of this community, and she's your daughter too. <laughs> and it pains me because it's not like any one of us can change this. But just because it's hard doesn't mean we can give up. 
does not mean that. In fact, it requires we gather together and push even harder so that the world we live in looks like the one God lives in. Amen.